Hello and welcome to the Esports Observer Podcast. Every episode we discuss the most game-changing developments, exciting opportunities and pressing challenges facing the competitive video gaming ecosystem. My name is Graham Ashton and this episode it's my pleasure to introduce an in-depth extended discussion with none other than Andy Miller, co-founder and CEO of Energy Esports. This North American esports organization competes across multiple games, including Counter-Strike, Rocket League, and Apex Legends, and it recently hit the headlines big after the team's Fortnite player, Epic Whale, placed third at the game's first ever World Cup, taking home $1.2 million. In addition, their affiliated Overwatch League franchise, the San Francisco Shock, has had a monumental year in terms of competition results delivering the league's first ever and so far only golden stage run, meaning they didn't drop a single map over the five-week course of stage two. Andy himself is also the co-owner and chairman of the Sacramento Kings, an NBA team. He was also the co-founder of Quattro Wireless, which he sold to Apple for $275 million in 2009, becoming vice president for mobile advertising at the company for some time. Something I've liked about Andy, based on interviews he's given, is how candid he is, not only about his work as an entrepreneur, but also about the esports industry itself. And that's something that comes across really well in our conversation, which covers the origins of energy, thoughts on all the games the teams compete in, and his take on both what's driving and holding back the esports industry. No announcements this time, but stay tuned to the mid-mark of the episode, where we'll have details regarding the first ever conference co-hosted by the Esports Observer and Leaders in Sport, taking place at this year's Leaders Week London. For now though, I leave you with my conversation with Andy Miller, CEO of Energy Esports. Enjoy. So Andy, the first thing I have to do is thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you give up some time to join us. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is is something a little different because on this show, we, we've pretty much entirely avoided talking about anything political, and I, I think that's how I want to keep it. But obviously, right now, the, the big conversation is the aftermath of the, the two mass shootings that happened uh, this last weekend in the US. And, you know, something that perhaps we saw coming was the media talking points have turned towards video games as a as a catalyst for violence. It's really a conversation that should have ended five, ten years ago. And, and of course, it's been drawn up now. And I, I almost fear to say it, but it feels like the kind of recent mainstream attention that has come through the Fortnite World Cup has kind of made this a more potent talking point. Sure. Uh, and rather rather than dwell on the negative side of that, I, I, I like to focus on the positive. And one of the positive sides of this today, actually, uh, NRG Esports posted a, a tweet basically asking gamers to respond with some of the, the positive sides of gaming rather than the kind of uh, falsified negative sides and one thing i liked is that you tweeted saying that gaming has and esports has brought you close to your sons it motivates you to start nrg and and i I just wanted to get your take then on the fact that this is this recurring talking point and maybe how we as a gaming industry a gaming community can kind of help shift that narrative a little bit yeah sure i'm not very political either but i felt compelled to put something out there i just feel like that narrative that Video games lead to violent behavior. Rap music leads to violent behavior. Movies, violent movies lead to violent behavior. It's such a lazy narrative. It's just, it's just, you know, look over there. As I said in my tweet, don't look, don't look at yourself. 
And that's, that's our big issue in this country. We're just not addressing our issues and we're quick to blame other people. And it's such a quick, everything's such a fast news cycle and we move on. And I'm sure, you know, in a week we'll be, unfortunately, I'll pass this and it won't be about video games any, anymore. It'll be about the next, you know, big headline. But it doesn't mean it doesn't go away. It doesn't mean that the, the, the underlying massive problem doesn't go away. It doesn't mean that, again, they'll, they'll blame video games at some point for something because it's just a lazy narrative. So we, we, we talked about it at, uh, at our staff meeting in the morning because everybody was pretty upset about it at, at Energy. And uh, one of our guys has had the idea, like, let's, why don't we just flip it and just talk about the positives for a minute here? Because there's so many. And again, the lazy narrative with, with the Fortnite World Cup has been 16-year-old wins $3 million. But that's not what's been really amazing about gaming the last, well, forever, but the last couple of years. It's all the things that it brings to people and, you know, the communities that it creates and how it brings people together, unlike the narrative now where it's being blamed for everything. <laughs> so that's what we did. And uh, truly, like I started energy just to, uh, you know, get close to my kids and, and their hobbies. And, you know, uh, we, we're a corner of an NBA team and minor league baseball team. And unfortunately, you know, I love it, but they don't care that much about it. And so I said, I better figure out what they care about. And then I got super into it. I was always kind of into playing games growing up, but, and, uh, you know, one thing led to another and had a conversation with, with, with one of my partners, Shaquille O'Neal one day. And he's like, well, you know, I've been doing it forever. I love it. Let's go. And another one, Mark Masteroff, uh, whose kids are all like division one athlete gods and they're massive gamers as well and we all had this one thing in common and between you know three adults who come from very different walks of life it was pretty pretty special and the more i dug in and learned about all these different communities within gaming as a big umbrella the more special it felt to us and why it kind of hurts i think everybody to hear this narrative which is just lazy and 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 just just dumb <laughs> I, th I think what's rough as well is it's framed as kind of a generational thing like you know the pe the, the ones who like to bring it forward are normally the politicians who, who who you can tell have not much of a familiarity with gaming but uh, I mean just during your talk and, and just from my experience of knowing so many uh, you know executives within the esports industry from traditional brands as well who've who've just been gamers themselves or they've come to know it through their kind of close circle I, I also don't see that there's this kind of millennial versus boomer versus whatever i think it's actually you know it's it's a general ignorance that's not defined by how old you are yeah i, I think you said earlier like what we can do with it and i think it's a it's a big political mistake i don't think it's you know it helps it doesn't get us anywhere it it, it pisses more people off but hopefully you know you said what can we do well you know the epicenter of the gamer is the 18 year old they can vote and we don't and, that, and if you look at every election going back to whenever, the, the, the most underrepresented class is the 18 to 25 year old. It's just, it's just a fact. Busy in college, away from home, doing different things, apathetic, not interested, don't think they can make a change. And this is it. Like, let's go. Now's the time. Do something. I don't care what your politics are, but it is, it is imperative that the, the, the narrative flips and there's more of you folks than there are of the 70, 80, 90 year olds who they get the buses <laughs> out and they go vote, right? Yeah. More 80 year olds vote than 18 year olds, I believe. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure because they don't have anything to do that day and their <laughs> their local officials get the, their party gets the bus out and they go and they walk them right into that polling place and they vote. So everyone's got to get off their ass and do something about it. 
I mean, I, I say this as a, as a British national living in Germany. We've we in our last one of our last elections here that there was a huge push to get the game of vote. You know, Angela Merkel mm-hmm. showed up at Gamescom. Uh, the, really? Yeah, yeah. It's and I don't know. I can can't say how effective it was, but um, who knows? You know, I would like be very interested to see. Uh, if, if a similar initiative was tried in the US and what the re- reaction would be and, and maybe what the result would be. But the interesting, you know, we get back to games, but the interesting anecdote is that of the this young voting eligible class, this has got to be the most worldly and educated in history. They see everything that's going on because of the internet. You know what's happening in Saudi Arabia, but you know what's happening in El Paso, you know what's happening in Dayton, you know what's happening in your hometown. There's nothing that you can't get access to and to see and to try and parse through and to make an informed decision or to just get pissed off and want to do something about it. So if they don't, you know, who's to blame? <laughs> well said. You talked a little bit before about the kind of the origins of, of NRG, and I would like to really delve into that. I just wanted to get your take on, on one more topic before we move on, because this was our top story of last week, and it's been hugely trending all over social media, especially amongst the, the B2B crowd. And that's that Tyler Ninja Blevins, the video game streamer and influencer, probably known for Fortnite, you know, announced that he's moving to Mixer, Microsoft streaming platform. Uh, and this is essentially, you know, Twitch's top star moving to a completely different platform. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's no different to a streaming platform acquiring the rights to a major show. It's um, it's quite unprecedented. And I'm just curious to get your reaction. You know, do you think um, drawing in a top influencer for however much Mixer paid uh, will be enough to drive user, user engagement to their platform, which has always not even stood second fiddle to Twitch, but unfortunately third, maybe fourth fiddle? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know if you really looked around social you talk to a lot of people even people who are deeply embedded in twitch there was a lot of like yeah that's cool great like we could use some competition here the reality is i think twitch has a monopoly whether whether it's a real one or a perceived one i feel like they do you know if you're a streamer and it's the only game in town and you've got a bunch of subs there and you worked your ass off to, to make a living and, and then there's nowhere to go. If Twitch changes the rules or messes around with you or whatever happens, you don't really have much recourse. And that's not good for any business. And that's not what our you know capitalist society is based on. So I think competition is terrific. Obviously, Mixer has deep pockets if they want. With Microsoft funding them, they can go toe-to-toe with Amazon. So uh, And a lot has changed in Twitch over the years. It's not the startup sort of cool place we all knew over the over the last years. It's very corporate right now, I think, and uh, it's just different. So it, it can't hurt, that's for sure. I mean, w- one of the interesting uh, things people pointed out was that well, Ninja how it's how you know however many million followers. I don't think a single streamer on Mixer had over a million, and yeah. you know the react the reaction to him going to Mixer has been a huge. You know, he's already got you know skyrocketing in subscribers there partly because they're running like a free subscriber campaign for him but i i hope the result is that now more streamers take to mixer and you do kind of see a slight leveling out in terms of where the top uh influencers and the top broadcasters are coming from uh because I, as, as you said i like the idea of competition and um you know in the same way that you have the fight between netflix and and hulu where really the only difference between them is the different shows i hope it kind of drives more innovation in the technology between the different platforms yeah, that's a really good point. Twitch has been pretty stagnant for a while, and they'll, they'll admit that as well. So um, hopefully, you know, we'll, competition will drive innovation. So as I mentioned before, uh, I think 
most of our listeners have the have have a decent enough background, perhaps on yourself and and your place in the industry. But I was wondering if you could take us back to, you know, when you first decided to invest in the esports industry, because obviously right now it's going to that point where everyone's evaluating its its long term potential and and where it, where it, where it's going in terms of up or down. But to, like, what was the kind of initial encounter with with Growing Beast and, and where you could find a part in it? Well, I would say about four and a half years ago now, um, I was with my partner, Mark Masteroff, for the King, my partner here on Energy and, and one of the co-owners of the Kings with me. He was the founder of 24-Hour Fitness. I guess the genesis of Energy and getting into the esports space was a bunch of research. I was originally just looking at it as an investor, you know, thinking, hey, what's out there? This is a really neat space seeing what my kids were doing with their time. As I mentioned earlier, they were on Twitch at time. I loved Twitch. I loved uh, watching these guys watch folks stream, starting to watch YouTube, playing games with their friends. My youngest was a big baseball player and I was just, and I love baseball. And I was just shocked that, you know, in between these tournaments, instead of talking about baseball or the Red Sox or whoever was the big team, they were talking about Ninja or they were just talking about Call of Duty or, you know, these new games and I was like, wow, they don't they don't talk about baseball at all. It's just something they do. It's not their entertainment or their hobby. You know, it's not their passion in a way uh, like it was for me. So um, Mark and I started talking about it. Uh, my co-owner, Mark Masteroff with the Kings and also my co-founder here at Energy. And he said, my kids are the same way and his kids are serious athletes. And I remember we were going, we were reviewing our uh, local uh, affiliate viewership numbers for Kings games and the, the Kings do very well. Um, we are a mid-market team, but have a pretty big market and, and very loyal, amazing fans. And the viewership, you know, ranks somewhere in the middle in, in the country for the NBA teams. And I just remember looking at that number and I was like, hey, Mark, look at this. And I popped open my laptop and I put on Twitch. And I think it was Soda Poppin, who's actually part of Energy now, who had similar concurrent. I go, those are concurrents, man. That's the same thing as the entire viewership for this game right now. <laughs> and it's all, you know, 18 year olds. And uh, he was like, we should, we should get into this thing because he loves gaming. So we did. And we got into League of Legends and then Shaq uh, famously saw our team play, not knowing it was us at uh, Consumer Electronics Show, our, our Counter-Strike team and called Mark up because they are, They've been friends for decades and Mark's like, what's the name of the team? And he's like, I don't know. And he's like, Shaq, go look at the jersey. And he went over to NRG and Mark's like, oh, that's me and Andy. And Shaq's like, you guys suck. You didn't include me. I'm like, okay, you're in. That was really, that was literally the, the genesis of including Shaq. Yeah. So it didn't take long. I mean, that's one of the things that really define energy, I guess, from like an outside point of view is the people on your board, you know, not just Shaq, but other uh, celebrities such as, you know, Alex Rodriguez, Jimmy Rollins, Jennifer Lopez, you know, before we kind of dive into what their input is, you know, how actually is the organization run compared to other organizations, you know, as, as the chairman and owner, you know, how involved are you in the day to day decisions and major business partnerships? Uh, and who else is worth highlighting kind of on the operational level in terms of how the companies run? Oh, yeah. So we're very similar, I'm sure, to everybody else. And I used to be chairman and owner like in year one, and I've been CEO since year two. So I, I'm full-time. Uh, you know, I was a pretty high-level executive at Apple. I've been a CEO at a couple of companies of my own, and I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life than I have at Energy. It's a labor of love, but it's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, gaming and esports, uh, it never, it never sleeps. It's twenty four seven. Whether you have, uh, you're in a tournament in Shanghai, or your guys are boot camping in Poland, or there's some problem with one of your Overwatch guys in LA, like it never stops. 
Social media is constant. Creating content is constant. But really trying to figure out your path uh, in this in this world because I having to had my nose to the the ground here as CEO and uh, anybody in my org would tell you I'm way probably too involved in the weeds, which is something I want to change. But in a new space, which is kind of how I've made my 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 career, getting into space early, hopefully not too early, and and, and becoming a winner out of it, you have to be like insanely in the weeds to figure out what, what when to go left and right and, and to go straight. And I don't think the answer is here yet for esports. Like I know there's a lot of money that's moved in that is venture money or money that's from traditional sports. Uh, I look at our co-owners in the Overwatch League, and you've got the Mets and the Patriots and the Rams and the Canucks, and go down the list. And I don't, uh, I personally don't feel that that's the model. I don't feel the model is emulating, you know, Manchester United or the Yankees or the Sacramento Kings. It's different. So I feel it's much more of a gaming community. A lot of what we just talked about are what's great about gaming uh in the opening segment about the you know the, the mass shootings is that it's about every all the answers we received for why what why is gaming important to you when we put out that tweet on uh energy gg or twitter and it was you know it's my i made the best friends of my life this is my community it helped me out of depression it gave me a job it gave me a purpose i became more interested in statistics and math and whatever it was but it's not you know that's my home team let's go so that's really been been it and so with that your, your second question we've we've brought in some great folks so my my work wife as everybody says is brett lottenbach who's uh been with me for a long time and we've split up a lot of stuff uh he's a president and he uh came from wmeimg where he helped set up the esports uh, the first esports division in that company and worked with E-League and some great brands like Bud Light and T-Mobile. We have two other guys that are incredible, uh, irrelevant in, in my mind. One's Jamie Kohenka. Jamie was an Overwatch guy. Uh, he's He worked with the NBA for a little bit, but Jamie's our scout. He's our general manager. He finds Mr. Savage and Benji and Dizzy and you go down the list, Sinatra. He's on it somehow <laughs> early. And that's just invaluable and he's such a great thinker and, and a great sounding board and then the most if you've if you've followed our growth 2019 has been an insane year for energy like the growth is bigger than the first three years combined and we're only in july and we basically we've had an instagram for a little while but we basically kind of in our mind started on march 1st and we're gonna hit 700,000 followers uh this week and uh maybe today and it's incredible growth based on a lot of the lifestyle work that we're doing a lot of the Fortnite, uh symphony benji savage epic whale and zay winning and big big in the world cup uh our apex guys but the voice the tone is so right on for the community and and the content and that's because of a guy named grady reigns who's also a pretty well-known Fortnite instagrammer he's our executive producer for all of our content and social and once we kind of just hit it you know we hit on it uh, what our what what energy's voice was, who we who we represented, and what we stood for, then things really started to kick in for us. I think actually Instagram is this kind of underrated tool uh, for promoting. I, I don't know how it is in traditional sports, but for me, I follow a dozen teams on on Instagram, and and I'm, I'm more glued to them than I think any other any other entity that I follow, just because the content is so varied. Like you just said, sometimes it's lifestyle photos, sometimes it's little comics. I mean, memes, endless memes. 
but uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't miss it. You know, you can come back to it. Twitter is just so hard to grow. We killed ourselves to get to 300,000 or wherever we have Twitter followers on energy and 170 or so on shock. And it's just a lot of work uh, and we're, we're going to keep doing it and we get, you know, good response, but Instagram is really great engagement. You can have commerce there. You can tell a st story there. You can have the Instagram, you know, the Instagram stories. You can just really build a brand on it between that and YouTube. That's really where our focus is. You talked a, a little bit about how you've seen this, the space grow and, and the people that have come into it. And it's kind of interesting that you're that entity that is a, a traditional sports team co-owner, but you came in long before we even saw the first franchising push for League of Legends, you know, before the Overwatch League. Overall, what has been your impression in terms of how the industry uh, has grown from the founding of NRG to now? Well, you're talking to, I believe, the reason that there is franchising <laughs> in League of Legends because we screwed it up so bad. We came in, you know, we, we started this team. We, through the first split, I think we we're, I don't remember, five and five or six and four. We did great. And the second one, all the wheels fell off. And Riot loved us. They were like, you guys are great. You're treating the players wonderfully. We're trying to be, you know, a grown up org and giving the guys what they wanted and we got relegated <laughs> and then I was like ah oh. and then the rest of the owners who were smart jack and andy and then steve they were like this is stupid how do you you lose the you know the shacks and the andes you know with a with this you know it was also self-serving but boom that then came right you know then came franchising so uh, i'm glad we were able to uh, lose all our, our fans and money on that and uh, help those guys out but seriously um i think franchising is really important it's allowed for, for whatever you want to say, there's been, you know, lots of conversation about it. I don't think any of the negative stuff has really happened. Um, what's really happened is it's allowed people to invest because it's a model that is familiar. And the money that's come in the space isn't from guys who've, you know, been following the space for 10 years or played games or went to land parties when they were kids. It's from, you know, traditional sports or, or private uh, family offices or, or teams and they understand what they do and they, they think okay this is very similar to what we do here at the fill in the blank patriots mets rams so we're going to start a similar thing so i think it's been overall good for the league i don't think it's going to work for every game as you can see there's a long way to go i wish the i wish the buy-ins were a hell of a lot lower because i really uh you know they're expensive and i don't know how justified they are but you know we'll see in the long run i mentioned this in my last episode when i was speaking to some of the management team at dignitas is you know next Next year, we're going to see a number of teams that kind of lost out on the first franchising push in League of Legends, Dignitas, also Immortals, and, and potentially Sentinels. Um, as a team that kind of went through the game's top scene and unfortunately dropped out, you know, have you ever considered moves that might allow you to rejoin, or, or are you kind of past League of Legends at this point? No, we love it. We love the game. Every now and then, we drop a little League of Legends tweet in our, uh, in our timeline because everyone still loves it. Um, and it does very well. Overwatch League is such an overwhelming effort for our org. You know, I think everyone forgets that most of the orgs are still not big businesses and they're not, we don't have a massive staff. But just yesterday alone, we spent almost a whole day about, okay, final uh, contracts on where we're going to host our home matches, our, our festival weekends, what is our pricing tiers going to look like? What is our, what's the festival going to look like? What's the special ad for this ticket price versus this ticket price? Who's going to, perform what are we going to do where are we guys going to live how are we going to set up scrims like it's an incredible amount of stuff then all the marketing to sell the tickets you know we have all the rest so 
uh, it's incredibly rewarding on some level and, and a lot of fun to build a publicly facing brand, but filled with peril and just overwhelming. So stacking them up, which a bunch of teams have done, I think, and really in an effort to raise money by stacking a bunch of franchises and saying, well, I'm in league and I'm in COD and I'm in Overwatch. And if that's their model, great, but it's going to be, I think it's going to, I think teams will suffer for it in the long run unless they're incredibly well capitalized and willing to be in this thing for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, uh, which some of these traditional sports teams are, but uh, some of them aren't, as we've already seen. Yeah, this idea of actually putting on your own esports homestand weekend. I mean, MV and Dallas Fuel, the uh, the Atlanta Rain and Asuna Immortals and Los Angeles Valiant, they, they've all had like a little taste of it. But for all of you guys, this is really new territory to actually host, you know, an esports event that's team focused rather than, you know, publisher or game focused and uh yeah no no playbook to really go by you ask those guys and they all they've all done a great job um, you know the first two events were sold out i'm sure the valiant event will be sold out but um it's not easy right they, you asked them they said man it sucked the life out of us. <laughs> <laughs> and that's for one weekend right so it's a lot of work yeah as I mentioned before, you know, one of the ways NRG was kind of ahead of the game and, and got a lot of attention was through its, its board of celebrity uh, investors. You know, we talked about Shaq and him taking an interest. And then there's a few others from both sports and the music industry and tech as well. Uh, one question we get a lot, uh, you know, especially with other organizations like Rogue, which has like a kind of like they could pretty much put on a whole festival at this point with, with how many music performers they have. And then, of course, uh, Genji getting some backing from Will Smith. What we get asked a lot is what do these individuals actually bring to an organization um, beyond financial backing? And, and what's your answer? What's the case when it comes to NRG? Yeah, I think it depends on the individual. You know, like we have a bunch. Uh, some do an incredible amount. Some don't. It's what they want to do with their brands. Like Shaq loves it. And so, you know, first text I got was from about Ninja moving was from Shaq. He's like, is this real? What does this mean for us? You know, which is amazing. Uh, first text our players got when we won the Overwatch uh, Stage 2 finals was from Shaq. And so that's meaningful to those kids, you know, and, and to me as a partner. So he he's involved. He, call, he makes videos for us. He helps recruit players, which is always the secret weapon. Uh, he knows the space and he's in it. He's authentic. He's been in it for a long time. We have other people like Alex Rodriguez didn't know the space, but he was really intrigued by it and saw a similar trajectory of some of these kids. Like he was reading about Sinatra as a 17 year old being signed, you know, a year before he could even play. And he's like, and that was like me. I was a 17 year old who was you know, ready to go for the majors, that type of thing. So they all find something that they can relate to. And it depends. Some of them are just a good press release, to be honest, and some of them, you know, because they're not that involved, but they'd like to have their name out there. And others are an incredible help. To turn to kind of some of NRG's recent moves in the space, uh, probably the most recent announcement was that um, you debuted a new branding, uh, and which was quite a significant departure from the, the logo of old. And you know, it's not certainly not the first team to have gone through that process uh, in the last 12 months. I know Dignitas kind of revealed a complete brand refresh for them. Complexity rebranded to kind of look to kind of take the image of their uh, majority owner, um, Dallas Cowboys. From your point of view, you know, what was the, the reasoning for the change at this point and, and the process behind the, the new logo and, and color scheme? It's interesting. You know, it's I was on the board of the Weather Channel for a long time. And I remember when we moved, we just moved stuff around on the website on weather.com. 
And I remember Cameron Clayton, who's brilliant uh, now at IBM president, he was running it and he said, you know, everyone's going to hate it. I said, no, this is phenomenal. He's like, yeah, it's phenomenal, but they're going to hate it. And I said, no, I think you're crazy. And the hate was massive. <laughs> and this wasn't from internet trolls. This was from, you know, 80-year-old women. <laughs> at home because it's the you know who moved my cheese syndrome you you change something that's familiar and i, I i'm and I, i've been doing I, I i made the logo with some with, with a friend of mine in 15 minutes when we started because riot needed a needed logo like that's <laughs> literally where energy's logo started and i don't remember this outpouring of love for the energy logo like it's it was nice i like it you know whatever but people a lot of the time are like well we should do something different refresh it what does energy stand for half the people including a-Rod and Shaq drive me freaking nuts because no, whenever they talk about energy, it's always NRG, you know, it's no, it's, it's energy, like feel the energy, you know, but people don't, you know, it, it's fine. So we said, let's do something different. And then because we had, um, because we have grown so much this year, really on the back of globally, because of our Fortnite guys in Europe, Benji Savage, uh, working with Click Crew down in Australia, uh, people knew us, so we wanted to do something more global, which is why we ended up with the um, with the globe. Uh, and we've gotten a lot of uh, privately a lot of love and publicly a lot of hate. So uh, you know, we'll figure it out. It's an evolution. We we do have a really cool logo that's a multicolored kind of spectrum, not a globe, and we love that one. But we were a little naive, I think, because that was originally going to be our main logo. Uh, and but it's very hard to print and there's not enough space on certain um broadcast areas you know for us to, to really see the energy so um we're right now we're the black and white black and silver with the globe and it'll keep evolving but um we just wanted to update it and make people so many folks have discovered energy in the last nine months uh, eight months that we thought it was time to make a change but we learned a bit we learned a lot <laughs> Part of the branding was also the first drop uh, for a new clothing line. And uh, we've had a few, you know, t uh, podcasts devoted to apparel and merchandising. And it's interesting to see how big a part, of, I mean, for every, you know, sports team or any kind of competitive team, like the merchandising is huge, but it's interesting to see how big it is for certain teams. Like you look at 100 Thieves, where it's very much inseparable from what they do. How how, how large of a percentage does apparel merchandise make up of uh, Energy's esports business? It's tiny for us, but it needs to grow. This year has been great. This year has been bigger than all three years combined. So it's all, you know, it's all a coming out party for us in a way. Like we spent three years building incredibly competitive teams. That's been it. Because the original model was let's be the best digital version of a stick and ball team. And we have been great. Like we've been crushing it. We're winning. I think you guys published. We're like number two or three in prize money this year. And on Saturday night, we just qualified for uh, already to skip the first round of the playoffs, top six for Overwatch League. We're number one ranked, and that's another minimum of a couple hundred thousand dollars before we play again, up to another one point, whatever. So without Dota, I don't know, maybe we'll be the winningest team this year for prize money, which is awesome. But what's really, uh, and that's great for the players as well, because they get the vast majority of it. But the reality is the growth you know, comes in areas from a financial standpoint where the team has big margin and you know we own the merch for energy unlike the sacramento kings oh you know it's part of the nba and it's split and the overwatch league is all split up amongst the teams no matter shock sells you know a ton and some other team sells a little so um it's important for everybody 100 thieves has done a phenomenal job it's definitely part of their brand phase you know, has been the model and uh, we, we we'd like to find ourselves in that company very soon 
Hey everyone, it's Graham Ashton from the Esports Observer, here to tell you about one of our biggest and most exciting conferences to date. Leaders and the Esports Observer, sister companies within the newly formed Leaders Group, will host the Esports Forum on October 9th at the Sports Business Summit, part of Leaders Week London 2019. The half-day dedicated esports forum will attract over 200 senior decision makers from technology, entertainment, sport, and esports. In addition to panel discussions that explore key themes impacting the future of esports, networking opportunities will be available, including drinks with the full audience of the Sports Business Summit, of which over 3,000 are expected to attend. Panels of the event include esports infrastructure, from training facilities to world-class arenas, regulation, what framework will unleash esports' full potential, and FIFA versus Overwatch, where is the money for sports properties? Our confirmed speakers so far include David Harris, Managing Director of Guinevere Capital, the parent company of Excel Esports, Chris Overholt, President and CEO of Overactive Media Group, Ralph Reichert, co-CEO of ESL, and Chris Park, CEO of GenG Esports. The opportunity around the esports industry has never been greater, and having personally worked with the leaders' groups to program and plan this event, I'm extremely excited to welcome you to London on October 9th. Whether you're a global brand looking to find the right way to enter the space, or a rights holder just wanting to know if a dedicated esports team is the right way to go, this is the conference to find your ideal place in the growing esports industry. Another announcement of recent days was that both Energy and the San Francisco Shock would be partnering with Marvel to promote the, the, the I say the home video release of Avengers Endgame. I mean that purely yeah. to streaming. I don't know if home video is quite the right term anymore. <laughs> but of course, this follows on from Team Liquid also kind of getting a, a, kind of their own merchandising deal with, with Marvel. They're very much headlong into esports now. Uh, can you give us an insight into how this particular deal came about and, and what are some of the key ways your teams will build visibility for an outside media property, especially one as Goliath as Marvel. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I was going to be flipping and say, you know, the movie did so poorly they needed to help, you know, <laughs> the home release, but I'm sure it's, it'll be fine with or without us. But this is the power of gaming and the power of esports, but more gaming in, as a whole. We worked with Adder, uh, an agency that uh, we're very close with in LA who has a relationship with Disney and a whole bunch of other brands. And they're well known within the space for uh, hooking up influencers, YouTubers, Twitch streamers, gamers with brands. They were working with Disney and thought we would be a perfect fit with the shot kind of rolling through the finals of every stage. Uh, so started the relationship there and there that was, you know, once we, we started talking about our, our star player being named super and, uh, you know, the type of content that we made, they loved it. So they thought it was a great idea. And, um, we then increased it to include the Fortnite guys and, um, content. And, and I think it's just a great reflection of what's going to happen in the future, very near future, which is you have so many people who game. So, you know, and it's a great cohort of 15 to let's say 30 year olds and you want to open a movie or, or release a new single or whatever it is. And if that's the cohort you want to reach, it's going to be pretty hard to ignore what everybody's been building here for the last decade. This is where you go. And thankfully we're on that list.
You've mentioned a few times about the performance of your Fortnite player, Epic Whale, who you know placed third in the Fortnite World Cup, um, which you know obviously brought in a huge amount of prize money. Um, but also, he's now part of what I think is one of the biggest you know esports events, certainly from the outside point of view. And the interesting thing about how the Fortnite World Cup kind of came to be was that you know, for example, Energy picked him up just prior to the World Cup once he qualified. So that, that kind of changes the dynamic in terms of how players join teams. Can you kind of describe a little bit of the process of signing him, you know, and, and what it has been like to get that visibility uh, through his performance? Yeah. So Fortnite was a total evolution going back to Jamie and his strategy in signing people. So we were the big dark horse and we got, we came in and got Mr. Savage. Um, we signed him. And I think when we signed him, he told us he had like six teams on it, the list and energy wasn't on it. And we blew him away with our presentation. We really treated him like he was a brand and we made a presentation to him and spent a lot of time with his family. And it just felt very comfortable that we would be the ones to help grow their brand. And with him soon came Benji, Benji Fish, and then Symphony. And we, we, had, we have had Zate for a long time, who is the pro's pro. Everybody knows Zate and sets up the discords and he's just been the man in, in, in Fortnite from day one. Uh, so when it came to someone like Epic Whale and uh, we said, hey, we were interested because we wanted to add another person for the World Cup and he had already qualified, double qualified. So it wasn't like, you know, we were on this journey together. So it was a little different. And he was deciding between a, a few teams and it was a similar conversation, very similar approach. He said, this is what we think we can do for you. This is how we think we can grow your brand. We think you're a wonderful player. We don't have anybody on the, uh, in the West Coast, which is where we are. And to make content, for example, there's a vlog shoot tomorrow with him uh, and Grady. And we spent a lot of time with his family. And this is a very, not, not that the other boys and kids and folks on our team aren't, aren't bright, but this is a super bright kid. There's a kid who's been taking, he's already like two years into college classes as a high school kid. He's one of those. He's one of those kids when you were in high school that you hated because he could do anything. <laughs> And he was smart, so it kind of pissed you off, you know, solve that Rubik's Cube in 30 seconds. Oh, when, when a million bucks, million two in Fortnite, oh, I already, you know, a couple of years into college or whatever. So um, that's him. And so uh, he loved us. We, it was a love at first sight, great family, signed him. And um, he hung around the hoop, as you recall, the entire time. Unlike Zate and his partner, Saf, who were in first place in the, in the duels the entire time. I mean, we, we literally clocked it. I think we were there for like three hours and 55 minutes and he was in first place. And then the last five minutes, he wasn't, <laughs> he was in, he was in fourth, but the other, it was the other way around for, uh, for, for Epic whale, who was, you know, 30th, 20th, 10th, 8th, 12th, whatever. And then the last two rounds, he just showed up and, um, we were, if I think there's a video coming out of us, cause we were up in the stands watching and I, we were turning to Jamie, where is he fifth? Is he sixth? Is he fifth? And we're like, he's fifth. He's fifth. We're sure. And then the, then the scoreboard came up and it was like, he's third. <laughs> we were like, holy shit, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And so, uh, we just couldn't wait for him and his family to come out and give him a big hug and, and, and start talking about the, the future and celebrating. One of the things that I'm very observant with Fortnite is how easy it will be to have that kind of repeat performance and, and keep it consistent, especially as the they continue to evolve the competitive scene. From what you know so far, and we don't know that much to be fair, what are your thoughts and expectations with the Fortnite Champions series of having a more regular competition throughout the next year? I like it. Uh, you know, it's a tough game to think about how to structure a league because the players are so young. You know, they're not going to move to X city and 
live in a team house necessarily. Uh, this is the youngest group of professional gamers ever. So that's a challenge. I'm really, um, really bummed that Overwatch League lost Nate Nanzer as the commissioner because he was wonderful, but really happy that he ended up in Fortnite, a game that, uh, you know, we're arguably one of the top teams in with energy. So uh, I think he's got a great vision and he knows what he's doing. I've been trying to pry some plans out of him, but I got nothing. So <laughs> <laughs> couldn't lie to you if I, if I, if I tried, but um, I like, I like more frequent competitions. I know the guys had such an amazing time in New York, just seeing their faces and, and interacting with all the folks that they just have a social online relationship with and get to hang out with everybody in person. They, they none of them even wanted to go home. Literally, they all said to me it was the best week of their life. It was magical. So the more events, the more lands, I think the, the happier all the pros will be, the more attainable, you know, aspirational it'll be for, for the rest of the world out there who's playing and who wants to who wants to make it themselves. I think it's one of the nice things about Fortnite is because it's a more streamer front-facing game. Not to say that most pro players don't stream, but I think it's a, it's a bigger part of, of Fortnite. And maybe it's also because like the players are a little younger getting them together in these big LAN events actually does give it more of that kind of, uh, I don't know, all-star feel in a sense. And that's great for both the players and the fans. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, the energy was incredible. The energy was amazing. You know, you go to a Counter-Strike match and these guys see each other every stop. So they're just like hanging around, whatever, get a sandwich. Here it's like, wait, you know, is that Mongol? <laughs> you know, big hug, haven't seen each other, that type of thing. Speaking of Counter-Strike, Energy Esports is also qualified for the upcoming Berlin Major. And uh, when I was at ESL One Cologne, I, I spoke to a lot of uh, guys running the CSGO side for a few teams. And I just wanted to get their take on Counter-Strike, you know, being this you know ancient esport by this point but still 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 kicking today and and the general mix of opinions was that some felt that it it is sustainable that it is potentially profitable and others just don't really see a long-term future in it and and having run a roster in the game since 2016 you know what's your take and and how big a part of it still is it to to energy esports that's a good question. We love the game. We've spent a lot of time building this roster, as you know, uh, a lot of incarnations of it. And this is our best one. You know, we're a top five team right now. We just added Peter or Stanislaw. Uh, we added Tarek. We have our three young guns in Cirque and Breeze and Ethan. So this is, we're going for it now. Um, as a game, and I think we have a great chance in the major, you know, as a game, it's, it's as, a, as an org, I mean, it's, it's hard. There's not a massive player base where there's a new, you know, another Cirque every day so that you can try and scout and figure out how to grow, you know, your, um, your talent pool and, and, and that's your fan base. Uh, it's an expensive game. His salaries are, are, are pretty up there for good teams. That's for sure. And it's, as we always know, getting better, but still hard with sponsors who don't want to be involved in anything that says terrorists or counter-terrorists or have blood in it. So all those things, you know, add up to a big challenge. But game never dies. It's awesome. It's the best spectator game. People go. Average age is much older. You know, <laughs> Fortnite was all fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and sons. And, you know, average age, probably 15. And you go to... ESL, whatever, and last year I went to the one in uh, Brooklyn. Average age, probably, what do you think, 28, 25? Yeah, it seems big difference. So, big difference. So, whole different audience. Not an easy audience to reach. You know, you don't see a lot of social content on Counter Strike outside of Reddit. Yeah. 
So um, it's just a very different animal. But um, if I ever get asked the question, you know, what is the best esport? I always say, what apart from Counter Strike, you know, um, it's still a thing of um, how you define it. And in the case of it's great that it's a game that's so unchanging for so long because that says yeah. that the core game is is just good enough to last. But of course, um, you know, as you said, the issue is that the costs for it are so high, and and actually, it uh, it doesn't have the, it doesn't have any of the uh, benefits of the more franchise-focused esports leagues, whether that's in talent development initiatives, whether it's in uh, um, revenue sharing for teams. So I know some of the, the organizers are trying to solve that. Yeah, it's it's tough because I, I wanted to kind of keep growing, but obviously it's it's got stiff competition. This is this is the year. Like literally from today through the end of this year, we will set the future for Counter Strike because, as you said, there the model's changing. It has to. There's too many competitions. Valve's letting everybody do stuff. There's burnout. The players are confused. They're all over the place, uh, and we they, people got to plant their flag somewhere and build a model that's sustainable because uh, it's not right now. So everyone's talking about it and picking sides and trying to figure it out. And I think it's going to be probably the big esports story going forward for the rest of this year. To turn to the game that is probably Counter-Strike's biggest rival from a first-person shooter perspective is, of course, Overwatch and, and the Overwatch League, a completely different beast in terms of how it's run and, and how much publisher support it gets, in, in this case, 100%. And uh, this year in particular has been really huge for your team, the San Francisco Shock. Uh, if, if we kind of look purely at competitive results, moving away from the business, you know, you moved up from ninth in the overall league table last year in the inaugural season. And now you're in third place with having taken part in all three stage finals so far. We're really in first place. Let's yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. We're not in third place. I mean, third place, the, 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 the sort of standings of regular season and adding stuff up doesn't really matter. But we're the only team that's made it to the finals and won the finals and we're undefeated again this stage. So if you look at the power rankings as opposed to not ranking, yeah, we're first. But I hear you saying. Yeah, yeah. But the very, I mean, no, like the fact that you, you're so far the only team to have that golden stage run is is pretty amazing. And uh, you know, just I'm interested to know, like, what's what's the secret? What's the best explanation for the, the kind of sudden jump in improvement compared to last year? A few things. One, going back for one second to the Counter Strike conversation, you know, we had talked earlier about getting our deal with Disney and Marvel for the shock. That was never going to happen with a Counter Strike team. We we, we tried. They're like, no, we're, we're, Disney is not going to put their name on a game like Counter Strike. So. Great example. Two, the sudden rise of shock is the, anything but a sudden rise. So we played a lot. A lot of people know, you know, we played the long game right from the bat, right, right off the bat. So Super and Sinatra, who are the stars of our team this year, ineligible to play most of last year, uh, half a little bit more than half the season. So and it was over by the time they got in. So it was all learning and growing. Uh, we built our team around that because um, we figured that those guys were would be the core of our team. Going forward, we were able to pick up superstars like Rascal as a reclamation project, which is still mind-boggling. The guy should be in the Overwatch Hall of Fame. He probably will be. Choyobin, out of nowhere, we got from from uh, Korea in the mid-season replacement. Moth was playing in a in height in college, <laughs> and you know now he's the Team USA. And uh, and we got Violet this year, which uh, we were we scouted uh, out of Korea. But the big and, and they came together, um, and we have an incredibly deep bench now that you can see that they're mixing up two 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 lock. We bring an architect and and striker who was the big star of Boston last year. So we have a very deep team, but we would be nowhere without the infrastructure. We have an we have the best coach, I think, in the history of Overwatch, which is Krusty, and it all starts from there. 
If you don't have that, you don't win. That's it. Like he knows how to get these guys communicating, talking, strategizing. They love each other. They're fine with coming in and out. Uh, we have a guy, Chris Chung, who's our general manager, who sets the tone. We have two assistant coaches, uh, Junkbuck and, and, and 9K, who will probably be head coaches on other teams next year. You know, it's one of those things like Krusty is the Popovich of the, you know, of, from the NBA of Overwatch League and his assistants, uh, I know, other guys. So um, that's how you win. What's interesting is we had Ben Spoont on a few episodes ago and we were talking about the huge change he made to his roster in the Florida Mayhem, which was to go for an all-Korean roster. And of course, this pretty much follows most of the top teams. You know, uh, you're, you're, the teams below you in, in the power rankings at this point are New York Excelsior, all-Korean team, uh, Vancouver Titans, which picked up Runaway, of kind of a, a quite yep. beloved Korean team. You look at last year's champions, London Spitfire, and I, I always point to San Francisco Shock as kind of the antidote that you can have mixed rosters. Like, as great as the Korean talent is, there is there is still benefit yes. to having it. Uh, what's your take on that in terms of, of build, keeping a roster that is still international and, and it's not all bound to, you know, one language, one culture. I think it's so important for the game. You know, the Korean players are amazing. They're just amazing. But there's amazing players all over the world, and you just have to figure out how to create that communication. We tried to do that with our League of Legends team, originally the one that got relegated, and it didn't work because the communication just wasn't there. The coaching definitely wasn't there, so the effort wasn't there to figure out how to all talk to each other. Um, but we're it's a big family it can totally be done and everyone just has to try and make the big effort and and these guys you know they live with each other they love each other they hang out with each other they go on vacation with each other so the communication is number one and i think it's important for marketing you know if you're going to create a global league you got to have people out there who who are playing who are reflective of the people you know playing playing on the teams who are reflective of the people playing the game so it, it i think it's very helpful from all standpoints I agree definitely that having having the talent be somewhat lopsided, which may always be the case, I think in other games it's certainly the case, is definitely be a challenge to grow the league. And this is a league that has you know certainly some challenges to overcome. Uh, you alluded to earlier the 2-2-2 two, 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 uh, locking feature, which was introduced to try and combat uh, what some saw was a stale change in, in the meta. And and for a league that I don't think the meta was so stale, <laughs> we were doing pretty fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a... I'm not what I'm most proud of with this team. Like I know it's only a couple games in, but like okay, we own goats. That was the meta. We crushed it. Finals every time. Best team in the world. Ask anybody who plays the game. And then they they didn't just change the meta. They changed the game. The whole game. It's not like okay, we're gonna buff this, nerf that. They changed the whole game. Two, 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 lock. Completely different. And then we had to start all over again. We also had the least amount of time to practice it because while other teams were already out of the playoff contention, we were rolling through it and making it to the finals again. And so here we go. And right now we're still number one and we've been working our butts off and creating depth and, and surprises for people. And, you know, so far so good. But it's it's definitely a, a huge a huge challenge then to make that massive competitive shift uh you know, oh. in the middle of a season, and of course, again for for this league property that has so much money behind it and so much riding on it, you know, it's one it's one of those things that we will only see it pay off. You know, maybe three five years down the line. Obviously, next year is going to be a huge indicator as you start to move towards home yeah. markets. But um, it, you know, in an industry like this where new games and new trends merge every six months, what kind of keeps you confident in the the longevity of the Overwatch League? That's a good question. I think it's the fact that Blizzard whose reputation is not that of a listener, 
is actually being a very good listener and fact gatherer with the teams. You know, now they have this 20 team focus group where we meet and talk and, you know, we, we made alterations to the home schedule. We're having this festival style schedule, which wasn't the original plan. And it was because they listened to what we think the market can do and what the fans were interested in. And we tested with Dallas and, 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 and Atlanta. And you saw the success of that, not just because they sold out 10,000 tickets over a weekend. It's because it was great to watch. Like it was different, you know? It wasn't the same game. It was, it had a new variety. It was Dallas style. It was bigger than life. And Atlanta had its Southern style. And I'm sure when it goes to Shanghai, it'll, it'll have their style. And we, when we do our San Francisco, I'm, I'm, you can be sure that it's going to be different. So that's what people want to see. It's entertaining. It's different. And um, so they're listening. I like that. And Overwatch 2 is, I'm sure, going to be great. And it's just a great game. You know, it's a great team game. So um, I think it'll always have its fan base. Uh, will it be the most popular game in the world again? I don't know. Will it go away in five or 10 years? I doubt it. I think there's too much effort and fan base and money behind it. But, you know, that's always the fear. I, I will give Blizzard that. And, and you know, I, I speak to a lot of League of Legends team owners and, and get their kind of gripes in terms of how Riot have improved the relationship with the team owners and, and try to offer them more. But, it's, you know, in terms of what Blizzard have actually done to bring in owners and give them a say, I, I think at this point they're they're matched. Um, and, and I don't know how well it compares to kind of your your, your working relationship with the NBA and sports leagues, but certainly it's it's setting a better trend in terms of listening and adapting to what the team owners want rather than this is where we see the best trajectory and, and f- fail or succeed. We're just going to go with that route. Well, as a journalist, you nail the central issue to whether these things will win or lose the, the whole franchise idea because the Sacramento Kings own one thirtieth or whatever it is of the NBA and the commissioner works for the owners of all the teams. So yeah, they listen. The relationship is amazing. The meetings are amazing. The, the focus, everyone's as, you know, only as strong as the weakest part. If a team is struggling, the NBA jumps in there with their team bow unit and they help sell tickets and create, you know, stability doesn't exist yet in franchising because we don't own overwatch. We don't own the game. We don't own the IP. The commissioner works for Bobby Kotick. So that's a dynamic that's evolving. Year one, okay, things are good as far as the revenue numbers, but the relationship was okay. Year two, I think it started off poor and got better and better. And now it's pretty pretty good and it's gotta get better and better. We just actually had calls about new, new, new committees and, and Pete, who's the commissioner, trying to open up more lines of communication because we kind of know best what's happening, especially in our market. So it's, and it's a whole new dynamic. So everyone's got to learn together. It just, we just don't have that steadfast understanding that, you know, the, the, the owners of the, of the teams own the game and the commissioner works for, for us and they don't. So it's a different dynamic that's flipped on its head and we have to figure out the best way to work together so that everybody can continue to support the ecosystem. Otherwise they'll just crash. Yeah. And unfortunately, it is a kind of, well, not an immovable barrier. I mean, it's one you can't really tear down, but certainly you can try and move it and and, and kind of stretch in different places where the publisher is always going to be the IP owner. Like it's their call about what happens with the game, with the the league. As we've seen with like pre-franchising, post-franchising area, there are clear benefits to all parties when everyone starts working together more. And I mean, for me, I mean, my my go-to topic when it comes to writing about esports is governance. And so I'm I'm still waiting for the day when when the Overwatch League decides, okay, we are going to have a players commission. We are going to have, um, you know, a, a, an independent arbitration process. Maybe it wouldn't happen, but 
I, I would hope they still push for that. Yeah, I think they'll be the first ones to do it. I mean, it's not like it hasn't been brought up and we're just feeling our way through. You know, we added eight more teams and uh, last year. So this year, we'll, we're not going to add any new teams next year. I, I, I'm pretty sure. I don't believe. So it's all going to be about concentrating on the new Overwatch, the, the new meta, the 2-2-2, the, the home matches, the travel, the player health, the financial aspects, the viability of the league. So um, it is, you know, if everybody wants to have all the answers at once, it's just not the way life works, unfortunately. So to close out the show, I always ask a set of uh, three questions, kind of like a temperature gauge on the esports industry. Uh, and I think the first one really touches on, on what we were just talking about, and that is... What is the greatest challenge you see facing the esports industry at the moment? Esports. <laughs> uh, and I say that just because, like, there's gaming and there's esports. I think the greatest challenge facing just pure esports is going to be the financial viability, stability of the orgs. Because games change and you make investments and salaries go up and there's expectations and people are playing for the long run. But you know, it's, it's definitely, you have to be smart. And the idea I think of teams like us and liquid and cloud nine and investing in 20 teams is just not going to work anymore. So there are going to be some haves and have nots when it comes to esports participation in games by sort of the bigger orgs. You said a bit earlier that you, you know, you didn't want to push energy forward as a, as a sports team, at least not in the same way as, as basketball or, or, or yeah. baseball. Is that, does that kind of tie into what you're saying that really esports teams have to be about more than just the competitive side? They really have to be, as you said, there's, a, there's that line between esports and gaming and really esports teams can tap into that in a big way. We believe so. We believe so. We talk to our fans and they, you know, they love that we're, we're winning, but they love us when we're not winning also. Like they love the guys, you know, the comments aren't like you suck usually. It's, oh, you'll do better tomorrow or don't get down on yourself. You've read them all. So it's a little different than if you go to a, a professional football team's Twitter after they lose a game and the betters all lost a ton of money. So uh, because they see themselves in these players and they, you know, they have a relationship with them on stream and in chat and um it's different so um i think that the whole setup is different i think that you know we used to have this is esports really a sport you know like who cares it's we don't really hear that as much anymore is professional bull riding a sport i don't know but they sold out our arena up in sacramento for three straight <laughs> nights and uh, they're crushing it so and people seem to have a great time and there's a lot of great entertainment and if we could do that with esports i think we'd be in good shape the second of the questions is what is something those outside the industry get wrong about esports? What are some of the misconceptions? I think that everyone's just rolling in money here. <laughs> it's far from it. You know, the players are working extremely hard. It's very competitive. There's a big balance, you know, to try and get a balance in your life. People are very young. The orgs are, are getting better and bigger and smarter and, and uh, have better backing, but still small as a business it's it's pretty small as an as an org structure you know there's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff so um i think i think that's a misconception um and i also feel there's just a misconception from people who don't really know what they're looking at that like this is some fad or something that this is here to stay and this is you know a generational shift in the way people spend their time I think this is just always my perception, but it's people completely mistake the high engagement from the fans and who are players as well um, with 
the idea that you'll be able to monetize them in a big way. Um, and I think yeah. because, I mean, it's weird because esports is is older than most people think, but it's also uh, still incredibly new as a concept, as a business. Uh, yeah, and so I, I see a lot of comments all the time from people who I think have got the wrong end of that stick. And I think they miss how hard a work it is. It's unbelievable. You know, I just look at how hard our guys grind. The Counter-Strike team, those poor guys travel everywhere, all over the world. It's their choice. They want to play everywhere because they love these tournaments. But that's an interesting life. I don't know if I'd want my 18-year-old doing that. Then uh, I look at something like the Overwatch League right now, and they're not traveling at all. But, boy, a lot of hours and a lot of video review and a lot of time. And, oh, guess what? We changed the way the game works. So you're a hero. You got to learn a new one or you're not going to play anymore. Thanks for your career, right? Like, that's a challenge all the way to guys like um, our friends at the Click Crew in Australia, Muzelk and, and, and Laserbeam. I talked to them a little bit uh, at uh, the World Cup. And I was like, oh, you, you, you're having fun relaxing out here in New York? And they're like, well, if I don't, you know, if you don't put something up or you don't stream, you know, if you don't post videos for four or five days, you lose, you know, a, a huge chunk of your fan base. Like that's, that's an incredibly stressful way to live. So there's a lot of hard work. The last of the questions is, a very simple one, but uh, perhaps difficult to answer. And that is, what does esports need more of? Two things: storylines and structure. So, if you're gonna, if you're a publisher and you're gonna do an esport, you're gonna create your game, an esport around your game. You got to think about the storylines as well. You need to create stars. You need to talk about and celebrate the people playing the game as opposed to just the game. Because I know their job is to sell copies of the game, sell, you know, in-game items, but it's really about their community. And they think that they, they, they promote their community, but they kind of sometimes look at their professional players and even the orgs as a fungible good that they can just replace with somebody else because there's always going to be somebody else. And then until they create stories like the NBA, you know, creates larger than life, you know, players like LeBron and Kobe and go down the list, right? That I don't think that it becomes universally sort of accepted or understood. Um, the other part is structure. There's still a lot of structure that's needed. So Overwatch League is a blessing on some level because we all have the same contract. It's a form, right? There's no poaching. I don't have to worry about guys calling up my coach or my players in the middle of the night like we do in Counter-Strike or some of these other games. Um, there, People have expectations very well set. Almost everybody has an agent or a lawyer. Um, Hopefully there'll be more player unions. Like, love that stuff. That, that just let's make this very much above board. And we're getting there. You know, we've had a thinning of the herd of lots of orgs and terrible contracts and and just people taking advantage of people on both sides. But I think it's becoming much more professionalized. But we're, we have a ways to go. Uh, thanks for that answer. And I'd just like to say thanks again for, for coming on the show. I think you're one of the underrated personalities within esports because I really like the fact that um, from what I've heard in other interviews, you know, you're always quite candid. You're always, uh, you know, able to speak speak your mind quite well. And it's it's always great to have someone who's kind of straddled the sports and esports world and has a bunch of stories to tell. And I'm glad that you came on the show and shared some of them with our audience. I really appreciate it. Oh, nice of you to say. I think that's because I'm old. <laughs> but I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I appreciate everybody supporting energy this year. Shock, you know, amazing. Let's hope we can run it, run the table. But energy has been such a wonderful ride in 2019. It's made everything worthwhile. So just want to keep growing the brand and hope uh, we can we can create some new fans along the way. Andy, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And that's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. 
If you want to stay up to date with the latest esports business news, you can find daily stories as well as features on our website, esportsobserver.com. You can have that sent straight to your mobile device by downloading the TO News app available off of the App Store. And of course, you can stay up to date by following us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, and you can find us on Twitter under the handle esportsobserved. That's all from me. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.